This morning's scripture reading is from Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, verse 1 through 14. If you're following along in the Blue Pew Bibles, you will find it on page 983. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1 through 14. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might." For all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray again. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word, and now we know how desperate we are of of needing your spirit to help us to understand, to be receptive, and to respond with faith and obedience. Oh, spirit of God, move among us in this moment. Do this all for the glory of God and the good of his church. We pray this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we're beginning a new sermon series that is going to be going through the book of Colossians. We're calling it Gospel Prime. It has nothing to do with Amazon. Uh, we're calling it that because whatever is prime is of first importance, which tells you what Amazon thinks of itself. Um, but that's one of the clearest things in Colossians is the gospel of Christ and how it is of first importance. There is a particular emphasis in this letter, as you're going to see, on the preeminence of Christ. Paul states in chapter 1, verse 18, that Christ is, as it reads, the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent that he might be supreme, foremost, of first importance, prime. And why is this so? Why is Paul so um, 
so key on stressing the supremacy of Christ, his preeminence, his firstness. It's because there was a form of false teaching creeping into this church that was distorting and disparaging and diminishing the significance of Christ and his accomplished work of salvation. Like in most letters that Paul writes to churches, Paul was writing because he was addressing false teaching going on. Friends, you have to realize that there, there never has been an idyllic age in the church uh, where everything just went right and everyone got along and there were no issues or problems. Even in the early church, there were problems. Sometimes, of course, coming from outside oppression, but most often than not, the problems, the trouble came from within, from false teachers within the church who were distorting the truth and, and they were promoting false doctrine. Well, that was the case here in Colossians. Now, over the years, commentators have spilled a lot of ink trying to identify the false teaching with something that was familiar to historians. Uh, possibly this was an early form of pagan Gnosticism or Jewish mysticism. No one really knows uh, in the end because there's just not enough evidence to nail it down to this or that particular cult or, or religion. Now, when we do get to chapter 2, uh, in a few weeks, Paul is going to address more directly this false teaching, what was going on. But, you know, all we need to know for now, the important thing is to understand that the form of false teaching going on in Colossians left believers feeling inadequate and incomplete in their faith until they adopted the system of spirituality being promoted by these teachers. And what really bothered Paul was how little of Christ was in their teaching. So here's just a real simple way of of thinking about what's going on. The false teachers were basically telling people in the church, sure, you've got faith in Christ. You're in Christ. That's good. You're united with him by faith. That's great. But that's not enough. If you want to really experience the fullness of God, if you want real intimacy and closeness with the Lord, then you need more than just being in Christ. There's this whole system of spirituality that you have to follow and adopt. There are certain regulations that you have to observe, having to do with dietary restrictions, festival observances. If you look with me in chapter 2, verse 16, In chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says that these false teachers were passing judgment on people. And according to verse 18, their judgment is that the Colossians were disqualified. They're saying, you're not making the cut unless you're abiding by our system of spirituality. And so you can understand just how distressing this would be for a church because you're taught in the beginning about the gospel, about how it's all about Christ and his sufficiency. But now you're hearing people say, well, that's a good starting point. But if you want to really experience the fullness of God, then you have to listen to this teacher or you have to read this book or or you have to to uh, catch this podcast or you just basically need to follow this particular system of spirituality. Whatever it is, whatever it is, it's pointing to something beyond Christ and the gospel and saying you also need that if you want to be spiritually complete. And this was causing great distress among the Colossian believers. They were feeling spiritually in 
adequate, as if their experience of God was incomplete and just missing something. And this is why you're going to see throughout this letter, Paul makes such a point of stressing that the fullness of God is found in Christ Jesus. And how as believers, we have been filled with Christ. We have been raised with Christ. We are seated with him in the heavenly places at the right hand of God. Our lives are now hidden in Christ. Now, you can see how he's just trying over and over again to stress the completeness and the fullness of our salvation in Christ and in Christ alone. All you need is Jesus. That's the point Paul is trying to drive across because Jesus is preeminent. He is of first importance. He's prime. So as we begin this study of Colossians, it's important to get a grasp of why Paul was even writing this letter. What's the whole situation he's addressing? Let me just summarize it. He's trying to encourage those who are struggling with feelings of spiritual inadequacy. And what a fitting message that is for us. Because many of us, I'm sure, are dealing with similar feelings. We feel like often we're just not Christian enough. I'm just not Christian enough. I don't, I don't feel like I've, I've done enough or I, I know enough. We feel like something is missing in our faith. Something is incomplete. Those, my friends, are feelings of spiritual inadequacy. And so what I want to do this morning is to show you, looking just at Paul's introduction to his letter, I want to show you three ways to address your feelings of spiritual inadequacy. If you want to follow along, look in your bulletin. You'll see an outline. These are the three ways to address feelings of spiritual inadequacy. First, make a habit of celebrating any evidence of gospel growth. Second, make a practice of praying for greater gospel growth. And third, make a point of reminding yourself of gospel grace. So let's go on to the first point. The first way to address feelings of spiritual inadequacy is to make a habit of celebrating any evidence of gospel growth. That means having the sense to recognize and to give thanks when you come across any evidence of God's grace bearing fruit in your life or in the lives of those around you. That's essentially what Paul is trying to do for the Colossians here in verses 3 to 8. Now, unlike many of the other churches that Paul writes to, he didn't actually plant this church. He's actually never visited them. Uh, He mentions later in chapter 2, verse 1, that they've never seen each other face to face. But he has heard a report about them. It came from a man named Epaphras, the minister who planted that church in Colossae. Paul says that he heard it in verse 7. So he mentions that this brother, Epaphras, again later at the end of his letter in chapter 4, and we learn that Epaphras planted not just this church, but two other churches in the Lycus Valley. That's basically in, Tur- uh, in, in western Turkey, Asia Minor. Um, one other church in Laodicea and another one in Hierapolis. So Epaphras is a pretty busy guy. And he recently visited Paul and he shared about the health of the church in Colossae. 
Now, where was Paul when he heard this report? Where was he when he penned this letter? Well, according to chapter 4, verse 2, he was in prison. Now, the two most likely places of where he was held was either in Rome or Ephesus. It's not exactly clear which location he was in. But he gets this report from Epaphras, and he learns about this false teaching going on in the church. And he's clearly going to address it in his letter, but he begins with a few words of thanksgiving. He is thanking God for how the Colossians received the gospel. He's trying to encourage them. He's trying to remind them of the truth of the gospel by reflecting on the fruit that it's born in their lives. So in verses 3 to 5, Paul identifies three fruits of gospel growth. Let me read verse 3 again. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So notice there, the three fruits of gospel growth that he highlights. More faith, more love, more hope. These three cardinal virtues of the Christian faith. Is the Colossian church perfect? Of course not. Do they have problems? They sure do, like every other church that has ever existed. But if it's a true church, grounded in the gospel, filled with the Spirit, then that church will inevitably have gospel fruit, no matter how small. You know, an amateur gardener or a complete novice like me will tend to give up on a plant a lot quicker than an expert. We don't see the kind of flowers or the fruit that we were expecting, and so we're ready to just toss out the whole pot. But the experienced gardener is patient and has eyes to look beyond the obvious and to see and appreciate the subtle signs of life and fruitfulness. The experienced gardener is going to continue to care for and tend to a plant, being thankful for any small evidence of growth. And I think Paul is like that kind of gardener. He's not giving up too quickly on the Colossian church. He's going to celebrate and and be thankful for any evidence of growth. And, And what he sees in this report from Epaphras is that in spite of this growing controversy in the church with all this false teaching, this nascent church is growing in greater faith in Christ Jesus, in greater love for all the saints, in greater hope for their inheritance in heaven. These virtues are the fruit of growth. Now notice with me, the roots of growth. And it's the gospel. The virtues are the fruit. The gospel is the root. So look at verse 5. Of this, of this hope laid up for you in heaven, you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. 
So we see here there's a message going around, a message with verbal content that can be proclaimed by some and heard or learned by others. We see in these verses it's called the word of truth or it's called the grace of God in truth or it's just known as the gospel, the good news. It's good news about the grace and truth of God in the person of Christ Jesus who died for the hopeless for sinners like us, to give hope, to secure an inheritance in heaven, really to share his own inheritance with us. Our hope in heaven is rooted in Christ in the gospel. And according to this good news, before we get there, before we reach heaven, while we still live here now in the present, Jesus has given us the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And that means, friends, that if you share in this gospel hope, if you've been sealed by the Spirit of God, then the fruit of the Spirit will inevitably bear forth in your life. That's the kind of spiritual fruit an experienced gardener like Paul can detect, no matter how small it might be right now. So we see him in verse 6 celebrating any small evidence of gospel growth, thanking God for how the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing among the Colossians and indeed in the whole world. Notice how how Paul makes a real habit of celebrating this way. Back in verse 3, he says he's always doing this. He is always thanking God for any gospel growth that he sees in the churches that he's working with or on the mission field as the gospel goes out throughout the world. Friends, I wonder if we do the same thing as Paul. He seems to always be looking at things through a certain lens. Call it a gospel lens. Always looking and being able to see evidences of gospel grace. Just ask yourself, do I do the same? Do I look for evidence of gospel grace and growth in others? Do I draw attention to it? Do I celebrate it? Am I giving thanks for it? Or am I more known for pointing out people's faults, for identifying problems in my church or in my small group? Am I always focused on what's wrong in the world? What characterizes me? Having a spirit of criticalness? Or a spirit of gratitude. Let's make a habit, friends. Let's make a habit of looking for evidence of gospel growth in others. And celebrating whatever fruit you find. And the more you make a habit of doing that, that you start looking at life and you start looking at others around you in that way, it's also going to reshape the way that you look at yourself and your own spirituality. It's going to address any feelings of spiritual inadequacy that you're dealing with. If, for whatever reason, you are feeling right now spiritually incomplete, then I want to encourage you to ask God to give you clear eyes to see exactly what his spirit is doing in your life. This is something you can pray. Pray something like this. Lord, 
Lord, help me to see the evidence of your grace in my life, even if it's just in my heart right now, undetectable by others. Help me to see. I believe your gospel is bearing fruit and increasing because that's just the nature of the gospel. It's like a mustard seed that will grow up to become a tree big enough for, for birds to make nests in its branches. That's how fruitful the gospel is. But for now, Lord, oh Lord, just open my eyes to see the subtle signs of spiritual life and fruitfulness. Help me to see the buds on the branches even before the flowers bloom. Ask for those eyes. Ask to be able to see through gospel lenses the evidence of his grace. So that's the first way, friends, to address feelings of spiritual inadequacy, to get those eyes and to make a habit of celebrating gospel growth. Well, here's the second way. Make a practice of praying for greater gospel growth. Make a practice for praying for it. The Thanksgiving section in verses 3 to 8 is typical of most ancient letters. They they begin that same way with a thanksgiving and often include also an invocation of blessing for the recipients. And you see Paul following that same pattern as it goes on in verses 9 to 14. This is an invocation. This is a prayer for the Colossians that arises out of Paul's thankfulness for gospel fruit already evident. And now he's praying for more fruit, for them to increase in fruitfulness. So look at verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul is making this practice out of praying for gospel growth. Notice how he says he has not even ceased to, he has not ceased to pray this way. He's always praying like this. Now, that's a habit. That's a practice. And he begins, notice, by asking for a filling of the knowledge of God's will. He prays on behalf of the Colossians for the fullness of knowledge, the fullness of wisdom and understanding. So it seems that Paul is particularly concerned here in his prayer on how they think, on the mindset, the thinking of the Colossians. This would suggest that Christianity, it can't just be treated as a mere religious experience. Many people claim to be Christians because of their upbringing. They were just raised in a Christian upbringing. Or or they've had particular religious experiences in church or at a retreat. They're basing their Christianity on certain feelings that they had in a worship service or at some event, which really explains why many Christians are susceptible to feelings of spiritual inadequacy because their faith is not firmly grounded in knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. They don't have that solid foundation. You know, it's very telling that the very first thing that Paul is praying for is for their knowledge of God's will to increase. It tells us, friends, that if you want to address the heart, you want to address feelings of spiritual inadequacy, you can't by- bypass the mind. You can't bypass thoughts about God and God's will. And so this is why 
Because we, we see this priority in Paul. This is why we as a church, we prioritize our teaching ministries. Now, of course, we care about the heart. We care about dealing with heart issues, feelings of inadequacy. But we realize from Scripture that you get to those issues through the mind, through holding every thought captive to obey Christ, through renewing the mind in order to discern God's will. And so this is why we as a church have preserved traditional Sunday school courses. You know, I know in most churches, Sunday school is a dinosaur. It's gone extinct. It's been replaced by something that's more centered on relationships and community building. And, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But there is also, at the same time, something special about devoting an hour of your Sunday morning to shape your thinking by the Word of God. To deepen your knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And so, friends, if participating in Sunday school is not a habit for you, well, today is a great day to make a start. I I encourage you, if you haven't done so already, if you're not doing so already, I encourage you to visit one of our classes right after service. Because just think about this. If, If the first thing Paul is praying for The first thing is for fullness of the knowledge of God's will. Well, then I ask you, in what ways are you actively seeking to fill yourself in that way? So I encourage you, join us and join us after service. Now, having said that, I don't want you to think that Paul only cares about being, about Christians being filled with information. Because if that's the case, if it's just a content download uh, to Christians, then why is this concern for knowledge communicated in the form of a prayer? Why didn't he just give them an exhortation to get into the word, to study the word more? No, it's a prayer here. And it's because he's not just praying for them to be filled with knowledge, with information, but to be filled with the spirit of wisdom and understanding. And we can draw this inference because when we compare verse 9 to a similar prayer found in the letter to the Ephesians, you see a connection. So if you look in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 17, you'll see a parallel. Actually, you'll see a strong parallel in many passages between Colossians and Ephesians. It's why most commentators think that the two letters were written by Paul around the same time. That explains the overlap. Well, if you look in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, Paul similarly just says that he heard about their faith in Jesus and their love toward all the saints. Sounds familiar? Which is why he does not cease to give thanks for them, praying, listen, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. The point here is that we need the Spirit if we expect to be filled with spiritual knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. 
Just cramming more Bible into our minds will accomplish very little if the Spirit is not present to give us wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. And so what this means, friends, is that every single time you are about to engage the Word of God in whatever way, shape, or form, right before, right before the sermon, as the preacher is ascending the pulpit, right before you sit down for a Sunday school class, right before you step into a Bible study, right as you start your own private devotions, make a practice of praying for greater gospel growth by asking for the Spirit's filling and help in that very moment. Why don't you just memorize Colossians 1, verses 9 to 10, and just use that as the prayer that you pray every single time you go into the Word. You're asking for the Spirit's filling. You're asking for His help. Now, if we keep reading in verse 10, Paul explains the purpose for being filled with the knowledge of God's will. Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. So apparently, it's all for the purpose of living a life that's pleasing to God. Friends, we cannot stress enough how learning sound doctrine, learning the Word of God, is never an end in itself. Sound thinking about God should lead to sound living for God. Notice how, how Paul uses the language of worthiness. Walking, which is just another way of saying living, in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now, it's intentional that he raises the issue of worthiness or of adequacy because that's the presenting issue brought forth by the false teachers. They're passing judgment on people, passing judgment on the Colossians, deeming them to be disqualified, to be unworthy. And so Paul goes on to describe what is a worthy life, the kind of life that pleases the Lord. In verses 10 to 12, there are four modifiers describing a worthy life, a worthy walk that pleases God. This kind of Pleasing walk is characterized, one, by bearing fruit in every good work, and two, by increasing in the knowledge of God. So take those two together. Clearly, clearly there's no contradiction or competition between developing your theology and doing good works. I don't know why, but for some reason, we like to pigeonhole churches or individuals as being known for, for strong theology and teaching on one hand, while others are known for being active in the community, doing works of justice and mercy, and we just kind of assume you're pretty much one or the other. But Paul won't allow for such a bifurcation. He says... It starts with being filled with spiritual knowledge. It starts by growing in your theology, but that's going to lead to bearing fruit, doing good works, which then is going to lead into increasing in knowledge of God. You see how it's all connected. It feeds each other. Now, if you look back in verse 11, Paul gives the two, the last two modifiers describing this worthy kind of life. It's a walk characterized three, by being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, and by four, giving thanks 
to the Father. Friends, he's describing for us the kind of walk that is worthy of the Lord, that's going to fully please him. So if you're reading this and you're dealing with feelings of spiritual inadequacy, feeling incomplete in your faith, then this is what you should be praying for. This is the kind of life you should be praying for. Make a practice of praying for greater gospel growth. But as you pray for gospel growth, as you strive with the Spirit's help to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, friends, the most important thing, the most important thing is to remember that you are already complete in Christ. We should pray this kind of prayer for growth out of the posture of having already been qualified, made adequate by God's grace. That leads us to our third way of addressing spiritual inadequacy. Make a point of reminding yourself of gospel grace. You see, after describing the worthy life as one characterized by giving thanks to the Father in verse 12, Paul makes a point now of reminding the Colossians of the grace of God that they have received in the gospel. Contrary to the false teachers who make you feel incomplete until you adopt their system of spirituality, Paul's burden is to remind the believers they're already complete, complete in Christ. He wants to remind them, you already are a citizen of the kingdom. You already are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Now, if we keep reading in verse 10, Paul, um, or let's see, now, 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 in verse 12, listen to his recounting of the gospel and for the three things that God has accomplished for every believer. So look at verse 12. And see if you could pick up these three things God has done. Uh, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion, domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So do you hear that? Do you hear the complaint? Completeness, the alreadiness of your salvation found in these verses. You've been qualified, delivered, transferred. If you're a Christian, if you've turned away from your sin, you've trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, then you are already qualified to share in the heavenly inheritance in light because God has delivered you from the domain of darkness and he has transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. And it's in light of these accomplished realities that you are now to pray for greater gospel growth and to strive to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So friends, you're, you're not walking towards an uncertain verdict, waiting for a judgment of whether or not you are worthy and qualified. No, friends, you are walking the Christian life away from a decisive verdict already handed down, one that calls you qualified in Christ. And the way 
you understand that difference makes all the difference in the world. Just think about all of those talent shows that are really popular on TV these days. You know, America's Got Talent, America, um, America's, I don't, I mean, America's got a lot of talent and sing, sings a lot, kind of shows. Um, just think about those talent shows. Just think about the pressure and, and the anxiety and the fear that grips those performers every single time they have to take the stage. Th- their performance is directed towards an uncertain verdict. They don't know if they're going to qualify, if they're going to be worthy. It's no wonder if they struggle with feelings of inadequacy. But imagine, after the verdict is in, after they've already qualified to move on, if that same performer is now asked to sing that song or to dance that routine again, yeah, the technical challenges are still going to be there. The challenges are still going to be the same, but now the pressure is gone and replaced by the sheer pleasure of performing. It makes all the difference when you're no longer walking towards an uncertain verdict, but away from a decisive one that says you're qualified. You know, one of my favorite stories in the Bible uh, is the story of David and Goliath. And you're probably familiar with their epic showdown, but I want to focus on what immediately happened afterwards. So just imagine with me, you're one of the soldiers in the army of Israel now, before the battle begins, you're understandably nervous because you got to fight the Philistine army and they have a giant on their side. You are feeling rather inadequate. But then you're told that someone has volunteered to be Israel's champion. In ancient times, battles were sometimes decided by both sides sending a champion to fight as a representative substitute. And the way it works is that if your champion won, then his victory is a victory for all of you. But if your champion loses, well, then his defeat is also your defeat. That's how it works. Now, as you see your champion step onto the battlefield, a little shepherd boy without any armor and armed only with a slingshot and five smooth stones, you're not feeling any better at this point. Up against a giant, The odds seem stacked against him. They don't look good. But of course, when the dust clears, it's your champion standing victorious. And suddenly, there's this resounding shout of victory behind you. Trumpets blare. A battle cry is issued. And you suddenly find yourself rushing down into the valley in hot pursuit of a retreating enemy. The victory is won. The enemy is defeated, but they're still going to put up a fight. They still need to be subdued. There's still going to be some smaller skirmishes that you're going to have to face. And you very well might be wounded. You very well might experience some bruises to show for it. It won't be a cakewalk. But it's a very different experience walking through battle towards an uncertain victory versus walking through battle 
from a decisive victory. Do you see the difference? The difference that it makes to be running into battle, right into the thick of things, knowing that your champion has already won and that the victory is already yours. Friends, I think that's exactly what Paul is trying to get at here in verses 12 to 14. Now later, if you look in chapter 2, verse 14, he's going to unpack the gospel even more and he's going to describe God as, quote, canceling the record of debt. That's the record of debt created by our sin, canceling that debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So do you hear that? There are legal demands calling for our punishment, but they've been lifted because our debt was placed on Christ and together they were nailed to the cross. And so now the verdict is in. We have been deemed adequate. We have been counted as qualified in Christ. Now listen to verse 15, chapter 2, verse 15. God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. So like David, Jesus volunteered to be our champion. And like David, Jesus disarmed the enemy and put him to open shame, defeating him with his own weapon. By death, Jesus defeated death and the devil. He's triumphant. He's the victor. And now if you place your faith in Jesus, if you join him, you stand on his side, then his victory is going to be counted as your victory. You're going to be redeemed. Your sins will be forgiven. You will be delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light. And then, then you begin to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. It makes all the difference when you are no longer trying to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord towards an uncertain victory, an uncertain verdict, but rather away from one that decisively says you are qualified in Christ. So church, this is why we will never tire from rehearsing the truths of the gospel every single Sunday, every time we gather, because we all are going to go through weeks maybe even seasons where we feel very incomplete, spiritually inadequate. And that's why we make a point of reminding ourselves of the grace of God in the gospel. That's what we do. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the grace that you show us in the gospel through the person and work of your son, Jesus the beloved son, the king of the kingdom of light. We thank you that it is by your grace we have been delivered and transferred and we are now called qualified and worthy. So now with your spirit's help, may we live out that worthy life. May that begin in our own hearts and be manifest in our life together as a church and our impact in this city and throughout the world. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.